0: Well, I want to ask you something when we get, as we get started this morning, and just want to ask you this about your life. I wonder, do you view your life as a story? And I'm not saying that because there's a right or wrong answer to that. I'm just saying that. Have you ever viewed your life as a story? Now, the older that you get, the more chapters you have in your story, right? And as, as I mean, I'm 43 years old. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, at one time I thought that was old, now I think that is young, and when I look at, I look at my life, I can look at different parts of, if I'm going to call my life a story, and see significant times in my life that shaped me. And that's true of you as well. And so, you know, just think of your life in that way, and some pivotal events that, that maybe have shaped your life. For some of you, maybe, maybe this is right where you're at. Maybe you've gotten your first job. First job. And I remember when I got my first job, it came, it was a pivotal moment in my life because I realized that my parents just don't get whatever is in their account and pay for things, food, clothes, shoes, like all those different things, like, like that actually had to come from somewhere. Like that, if you, have, if you have teenagers especially, you know how much you're trying to stress to them the reality that money doesn't grow on what? Trees. Yeah, Trees. And when you have your first job, you actually realize, oh, my goodness, I have to work for the things that I have? Like, What an amazing concept. But, but I remember my first job, I was 15 years old. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. I worked in a plant nursery. So I worked in a, in a, in a compound that we specialized in planting and growing gardenias. Some of you don't even know what that plant is. I don't even know if they grow in North Carolina. But anyway, we, were, we, we potted the plants. We set the plants out on, in these greenhouses that had black tarp. So imagine in the summer, 98 degrees, 100% humidity, standing on black paper all day long. In fact, the person that I worked for, his, his greenhouse His compound, he lived on that compound. I remember one day he decided, since we got most of the work done, that no, we can't go home early. Instead, he's going to cut down some trees on his property, oak trees, that he wanted to clear. He's going to start a bonfire. Now, don't flip out because it rains a lot in Florida. So he started a bonfire. So there we have this blazing fire, and it's 98 degrees out, and we are hauling limbs into that fire. And you know what I was getting paid? Minimum wage at that time. I sound like an old person now who's like, well, we walked five miles in the snow back and forth. So I'm, this is my time to do that now. $4.25 was minimum wage. So I remember at the end of that first week of work, my paycheck didn't even equal a $100 after taxes. To this day, my first job I see as my hardest job. And I'm putting pastoring in that as well. Was my hardest job. That first job was a pivotal time in my life. Maybe it was a pivotal time in your life. Maybe there's another event. Maybe it's when you got married. That was a pivotal time in your life. Because now all of a sudden you aren't just responsible for you to play the fool however you want to, now you're responsible for another person. It was a pivotal time in your life. I remember. Right before I was to walk out in front of all the people in the church to be married to my amazing wife, Lori, I got hit with this wave of responsibility that came out of nowhere. And I was like, oh my God. It wasn't like, did I doubt that I'm supposed to marry this woman? It's like, all of a sudden, I got to take care of someone else besides me. That was a pivotal time in my life. How about this? How about your first child? Now I know I'm preaching to the choir because we got 30 babies that were born this last year to first-time parents. So now I'm truly preaching to the choir. See, for me, Lori and I's first year of marriage was amazing. It wasn't like we were always fighting with one another about me leaving, you know, my underwear on the floor or not picking up my laundry or any of that stuff. We had a great first year of marriage. I looked at it I was like, it was awesome. Like, we were married for five years before we had kids. Like, those were amazing five years. And I remember when we had our first kid, that was a pivotal time. That was the hardest year of our marriage. Because all of a sudden I got smacked in the face with how selfish I am. Pivotal time in your life, right? Let's take a turn. about the first time you lost your job? And all of a sudden you're gripped with the reality, how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to pay these bills? There's people relying on me. It's a pivotal time in your life. What about that diagnosis that you may have gotten that came out of the blue? If you look at your life as a story, you would say, man, that was a pivotal time in my life. It's a pivotal time in our lives. See, our lives are made up of moments and events that can shape who we are and how we see life. We're beginning a new series today called this Game Changers. Because another way to call those events in your life that woke you up, that you could look and say, man, when that happened, my life took took a turn, good or difficult, we could call those events Game Changers. But the title of this series is called that, and here's the reason why it's called that, because what we're going to do is we're going to look at six promises that can change your life. Now, some of us are in this room, and we know we've called Salem Chapel our home, and you know what we normally do. We normally walk through books of the Bible, and in our series in Ecclesia, we walk six, six weeks through different passages of Scripture because we as elders thought it was very important to clarify and identify the framework by which we determine success in this church, and I don't know if you realize this or not, but there's nine Sundays before Christmas. That was a game changer for some of you right there. News flash. And when we walk through books of the Bible, we want to make sure that we're taking time to walk verse by verse so that no part of a book is wasted. And so in January, we're going to do that. We're going to walk through the book of Colossians from January all the way through Easter. So know that that's coming. But I say that not to minimize what we are doing in these next six weeks. Because the promises that we are going to look at for the next six weeks, including today, are promises that can change and shape your life. There's a reason why I said six promises that can change your life and not will change your life, because de- it's dependent upon whether or not you take these promises and make them your own, whether or not they change your life. There's over three Thousand promises in the Bible. And I say over 3,000, and I'm not getting any more specific in that because after you, there's some people that say five, there's some people that say four. Here's what we know over 3,000. We're going to look at six. But the six are promises that I believe if you have these in the forefront of your mind and you can call them to memory and you know what they are, then they will have significant impact in how you navigate through events in your life, good or difficult. Here's why I say that. This morning we're going to look at the promise of salvation, and we'll talk the rest about that. But if I was to say to you, what's the passage of Scripture that you cling to when the enemy wants you to doubt that you're a believer, do you have one that you call immediately to your mind? Because if you don't, that's why we're doing what we're doing. In fact, every one of you should have come in with one of these cards, and on the back will be a passage, the passage of Scripture that we look at every week or a portion of it. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's why you have these in your hands, and you will have at the end of our series six of these, is to memorize these. You're like, man, that's 10 verses. I've never memorized 10 verses in my entire life. Awesome. Here's the first time. And it's not that you have the verses, six passages memorized by the end of this series, but you have six passages of Scripture that can speak perspective into your life. So when you doubt if you're a believer or not. Man, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm having these struggles. Am I really that? No, no, no. Let me recall Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. When you're doubting that you can be restored, that God loves you in spite of your sin, we're gonna look next week at the promise of restoration so that you have a passage of scripture that you can pull up immediately and deal with whatever event comes into your life that wants to make you doubt that. We're going to look at a promise of direction that when in your life you're trying to determine, man, what do I do here and what do I do here? And what if I make the bad decision? And what if I make the wrong decision here or there? What's the passage of Scripture that can remind me of the reality of how God's Word speaks to those events in my life? We're going to give you that. How about the promise of strength? And when I'm feeling weak, when I'm feeling like I can't go on, when I'm tired of waiting... It's a passage of Scripture that I can immediately cling to and bring to my mind to help me deal with that struggle. We're going to give you that. Promise of purpose. When I need to be recalibrated to why I'm here, why I exist, what will bring me true happiness and contentment, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that gives the promise of purpose and then a promise of hope when we feel hopeless. See, these are passages of Scripture that are fundamental to how you live your life. You know, I got a white flag here, and when we think of a white flag, and when it's waved, what do we oftentimes think of? We think of what? We think of surrender. Now, here's what I found out at the first service. I've only lived here about two and a half years. Someone was, says, here's another thing I think of when the white flag is waved. Last lap of a race. I was <laughs> like, we do live in NASCAR land. I grew up in Florida, so I don't even watch it. But for those of you, that's what you're thinking of right now, okay? But we oftentimes think of surrender, most of us, right? And when we think of the white flag, I don't know about you, but when I think of the white flag being waved, you know what I think of? Not just surrender, I think of defeat. Like we're done. We're surrendering. Don't have the strength. Can't go on. Can't endure this any longer. You're stronger than I am. We're done. But you know what's interesting in the Bible? Surrender is not looked at so often as defeat, but as victory, depending on who you're surrendering to. And so when we look at these passages of Scripture for the next six weeks, passages, promises that can change your life. It's dependent on whether or not, as we look at these, that you take them and you apply them to your life and saying, God, I surrender to what your word says. Because what do we say here? When God's word is open, what? God's mouth is open. And God's word is God's will. And so what I want to encourage you this morning is as we look at this first promise, and the title of the message this morning, if you're taking notes, is this, The Promise of Salvation. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I don't believe there's a greater passage of Scripture in the New Testament that in 10 verses describes the narrative, the story of, of every person who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. Because in these 10 verses, Paul, who is writing to the church at Ephesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is why today we can say these are God's words, what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand in this passage of scripture is it literally gives you buckets to put the narrative of your life story. See, it talks about who I was before Christ, who I am because of Christ, and what he has created me to be through Christ. And so this passage of Scripture literally is the framework by which I ought to view life. And so what I want to do this morning in these 10 verses is to show you how the promise of salvation can change your life. Because this is the idea that I want you to get this morning that really is the umbrella of everything else that we are going to cover. It's this, that the greatest promise that can change your life is the promise of salvation. The greatest promise. Like if we're gonna look at six promises that we can surrender our lives to, then we gotta start at the greatest promise, which is the promise of how one can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can be saved and have a relationship with God and a home in heaven awaiting them and a purpose by which to live their lives by. And so let's look at verses one through three. Look at what Paul says. He says, and you were dead, in your trespasses and sins, and we're going to explain what Paul means by that, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, say all, all, Keyword, not some, all of us. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I already said that these 10 verses are the most descriptive verses about the narrative of a follower of Jesus Christ's story. But these three verses, the first three of these 10, are the most descriptive of who someone is without Jesus Christ in their life. And so the first thing that we need to believe in order to be surrendered to this promise of salvation, the greatest promise that has ever been given, is we first have to realize, number one, who you are, who I am without Christ. See, some of us have been saved for a long, long time. And here's the temptation. When we come to a passage of Scripture like this, that if you've been saved for a long time, this is not the first time you've heard this, is now your mind's about to go on autopilot. And if that's you and that temptation is you, then, man, this message is for you. And let me say this. If you're here today and you've been thinking that somehow, you wouldn't maybe describe it this way, there's these cosmic scales in heaven that hopefully the good outweighs the bad that I've done and God will accept me into his presence and let me in because the good outweighs the bad that I've done, then hear me, I am so glad you are here today. Because if you're here today and that is you, I believe that you are not here by chance, that God has you here for a purpose to hear about the greatest promise that God wants you to surrender to. But it starts with me understanding who I am without Christ. And what's the first thing that Paul says in regards to who I am without Jesus Christ? He says, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. Now, this is not a trick question. What do you think dead means in the Greek in which the New Testament was written in? Not a trick question. Dead means what? Dead. Dead. One of my favorite movies, Princess Bride, right? It's not half dead, dead, dead. No response. And we'll talk about what that means, but as I was studying this idea of what dead is, I came across this interesting individual that could not really get this concept. And his name was this, Jeremy Bentham. Anybody in the crowd ever hear this guy? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you. You guys are probably philosophy, or you had to take a, a philosophy class. Jeremy Bentham, never heard of this guy. He's, he's called the father of utilitarianism. And some of you may not know what that is. It's basically this, that the greatest happiness of the greatest number, that is the measure of right and wrong. That's scary. So that would literally be like, hey, um, do you think that this is right or wrong? Let's take a vote. All right, if we get the most people saying, yes, that is a way that I can be happy, then it must be right. It's really rooted in humanism, but that was the teaching, and that was Jeremy Bentham's. He was the father of that, but here's what's interesting. Here's, here's really why I bring this guy's name up, and he lived from 1748 to 1832, so he lived quite a long life. He said, it said this, when he died, he gave orders that his entire estate be given to the University College Hospital in London, but on this condition. This is crazy. I had to research this because I thought it was, like, not true what I was reading. ever go to Snopes? Like, I I, I actually spent some time because this guy fascinated me. This was the condition. You're like, just tell me. This was the condition. (laughs) That his body be preserved and placed in attendance... At all the hospital board meetings. <laughs> that, that was like flabbergasting to me. So uh, there's a picture of his, his body is actually still in this college, and it sits there like this, and you're like, well, that's cute. That's a wax figure, but here's what you need to understand. That's actually his skeleton underneath. Creepy, right? So obviously that's a wax figure on his head, but underneath is the skeleton. So what he wanted was every board meeting for someone to pick up that thing, set it down in the chair, and can you imagine them deciding on on a direction and everyone's taking a vote and now they're like, Jeremy? (laughs) We're waiting for a response, Jeremy. Why couldn't he respond? Cause he's dead. <laughs> now, Jeremy, I don't know if he was doing this to, to, to be funny or what. And 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 there was a myth going on that he came to every board meeting, which he did not, but in 2013, just because they wanted to feed that myth, they actually did bring him into a board meeting. Which, man, that would be a weird day to show up. But nonetheless, here's where it gets even weirder. He also wanted his head preserved. So here's a picture of his head, right? Yeah. So that's burned in your memory now for the rest of the day. Here's why I share that. Because Jeremy had a poor understanding that when you're dead, you're dead. Now, Paul uses this analogy, dead in your trespasses and sins. He's not speaking of physical death, but he's speaking of spiritual death that every person who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is spiritually dead. And I know that's a hard thing for us to comprehend because we're like, man, I know there's lots of people that are my friends and I work with and I interact with and, and, and they're, they don't believe in Jesus Christ, but man, they, they are, I mean, they're great humanitarians. They're very intelligent. They're very strategically minded. They're great people. But listen to me, allow God's word... To be the thing by which you see life. And God's word says that every person without Jesus Christ is spiritually dead. Here's what that means. It literally means that someone, which was you and me, before Jesus Christ, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we all were blind to the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. We all lived in this utilitarian mindset. That I'm the one that determines right and wrong and I'm the one who is the one that calls the shot and that's why I say it's really rooted in humanism. I am my own God. My board for my life and making decisions is me, myself, and I. There's three of us and we all agree all the time. We are spiritually dead. We're blind to the reality of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And we are as dead to that as a corpse is to the realities that we live in every day. And I don't say that to be insensitive to those that we may have lost. I say that to remind ourselves of who we are without Jesus Christ. What else does it say in verse 2? It says, man, we followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying is, is every one of us followed the enemy's agenda. And the enemy's agenda is do whatever makes you happy. Because the enemy knows that if I can get you to believe that you are, you are your own God and you are the source of absolute truth, that nothing will separate you from God for all of eternity than that type of agenda. And that's who we all were. And the reason why I had us all say all out loud is to Calm down the tendency in our lives to want to be high and mighty if we no longer think that way. Because that's all of us without Jesus Christ. What else does it say? It says in the beginning of verse 3, man, we lived out our sinful passions. Man, whatever I wanted to do, I did. And because we lived this way, because this was our condition, what does the end of verse 3 say? We were all by nature children of wrath that was my nature. My nature is to want to serve me. My nature is not to surrender to someone else and to follow someone else. And I am deserving of God's judgment on my life because of my sin. Whether I ha- no, Regardless of what I've done, we are all sinners and all deserving of God's wrath. And some of us are like, well, how could a good God do that? Well, wait a minute. If we serve a perfect and holy and good God, a good God doesn't allow injustice to go without punishment. This is who we were. This is who we are without Jesus Christ. Now, remember what I said. If, without Jesus Christ, you're spiritually blind to this. So here's what you don't do. Can I just tell you what you don't do? You don't want walk up to that person that you know needs Jesus tomorrow and you say, hey, did you know that you're spiritually dead, you're following Satan's agenda, you're serving your own passions, and you're deserving of God's wrath. Now, I grew up with people that used to yell that out of megaphones on the corners of the street. That's not what you do. Why? Because they're blind to that. Blind to that. But here's why I emphasize that. Because every one of us have a thread in our story where we came to the place in our life where God opened up our eyes to realize first that we are lost without Jesus. And it doesn't matter what our story is. Yesterday we gathered together as man and heard from one of our own, Leroy, who shared his testimony of how God saved him from a life of sin. But man, I was saved at four years old. There's not a whole lot of bad you can do for four years of your life. But I understood in essence, though, that I was a sinner, that I wasn't perfect, and God loved me enough to send Jesus. That's why it says it takes the faith of a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So regardless of whether or not you were saved at an early age or you were saved yesterday, we all came to the time of our life where we realized that we are lost without Jesus. And if we're going to accept and surrender to this promise, it starts with first acknowledging, man, who, I am, who am I without Jesus? Because God's a perfect God and he demands perfection and we all fall short of that. And I'm hoping today that if you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, that God is already beginning to help you understand that without him, you're lost. But I'm so thankful that the story doesn't end there, aren't you? Because look at what it says in verse four. But God. Now, whether you got it on your phone, whether you have it open on your lap, whatever it is, I want us to read those two words together in verse four. Can you do that with me? Say it with me. But God. Say it again. But God. Listen, every time, I looked it up this week, every time that phrase is mentioned in the Old or New Testament, it always speaks to God's intervention. There are no two greater two words in the Bible to help calibrate your life than those two words, but God. He says, but God, that even though I was by nature a children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen to me. The greatest promise that has ever been given is the promise of salvation. That not only do I need to realize, God, I'm lost without you but we also need to believe how much God loves you through Christ. Not just who I am without Christ, though every person comes to that realization and their eyes are open to that reality, but how much God loves me through Christ. That's the most beautiful part of the story. But it's only beautiful if I understand what I need and who I am without it. See, oftentimes when the gospel is shared, it's only often shared that God loves us. But we cheapen God's love when we don't emphasize why we need it in the first place. Because when I understand my need without Christ, oh, praise God, God's love for me, those two words, but God, carry such an amazing significance when I understand who I am without Him. And but God, emphasizes so beautifully his mercy and his grace. Look at what it says. But God being rich in mercy. Aren't you so glad it doesn't say stingy in mercy? That's me. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love. Aren't you glad it doesn't say minimalistic love? God who is rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved me. Man, you know me, if you've been at this church, I I encourage you to write in your Bible, by no means are these pages holy in and of themselves. I feel like what makes them holier is when they got lots of ink on them and tears on them. And you ought to write above that word, us, your name. See, there is something innate in us that we all are looking for heroes. Are we not? Like, nobody taught me growing up as a boy to, like, be into Superman or Batman or the Incredible Hulk or Iron Man or whatever other superhero that is. Listen, I'm still in to go. I went and saw the Avengers. I still like it. There's something wired in us to look for a hero. And it was interesting. I thought to myself, man, you think about the comic books that are, that are written. And I never really got into those as much as cartoons. But I thought, I wonder who the largest demographic is for reading comic books. And this is not an indictment if you read a comic book, so don't take it as that. But I was shocked to find out that the average age of someone who reads a comic book is a 36-year-old guy. And once again, that's not to make fun of guys who read comic books. But you know what that drove home? We're all looking for a what? A hero. I came across this picture it's probably not new to you that I think kind of drives home that reality. I mean, I almost thought one time of getting a t-shirt for Lucas that said this, but then I was like, man, I don't, like, I don't know if it was my, my, my upbringing. I was like, man, is that sacrilegious? Is it not sacrilegious? Like some of you are feeling that tension right now. Some of you are judging me for showing that picture right now. <laughs> but God loves me. But I show that because as simple as that picture is, it drives home that the greatest hero for our lives is Jesus Christ. And any other person that I'm looking to as my hero is fictitious. You can be looking to me as your hero or... Your spouse is your hero, or somebody else is your hero. But any other person besides Jesus Christ is imperfect, which means every single one of us, regardless of our desire, are going to fail each other at some point. And God has wired in us to want to look to someone greater than ourselves. And the reason why... So that we can look and our eyes can be opened to realize that I need a hero and Jesus Christ is that hero and Jesus Christ is the one who communicates how much God loves me and i want to answer for you this morning if you're an, if you're asking man how much does god love me yeah it says he's rich in mercy and because of his great love but how much does he love me and what i love is that it's not me answering that question but it's the holy spirit answering that question because the answer are literally found in these verses look at what it says it says He has made you alive together with Christ. How much does God love me? Man, he loved me when I was at my worst. He didn't love me when I was at my best. He didn't love me because of the potential that maybe I could have. No, 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 he loved me at my worst. Notice that it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, rich in mercy, great love, loved us, but he didn't love us at our best, he loved us at our worst. And he made me alive. He did that. Yes, I have her free will. But somehow in God's infinite mind that's greater than our finite mind, God opened up my eyes to realize I was lost so that I could believe that I've been found. He made me alive. When's the last time you have thanked God in your time alone with him that he has made you alive? That's why I say this promise of salvation is just not applicable for those of us who have placed our trust in him for our eternal destiny in this promise. But it's for some of us, man, that we need to figuratively blow the dust offer this passage of scripture in our lives and say, God, I thank you so much that I am reminded in this passage of scripture that I wanna have on me at all times to be reminded when I doubt that I am loved that you loved me and you loved me and you showed me by making me alive. But what else does it say? It says he raised me up with him. He seated me with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He gave me a future. Here's what's so amazing by that. It talks about my position in Jesus Christ. That for me, speaking of my story, as a four-year-old boy, Jesus didn't just call me into heaven in that moment, but I am continually living my life for as long many days as God has ordained. But in living this life, even though I'm still on this earth, even though I'm still sinful, God says, hey, here's what's secure. Man, I have seated you in the heavenly places. No one can take away your position. No one can take away your identity. You are rooted in me. When's the last time we've preached that to ourselves in a moment in our life that has been a game changer? He's given us a future. And He's given us something that we couldn't receive on our own. By grace, you've been saved. He gave me what I don't deserve, He's rich in mercy. He didn't give me what I do deserve. My grace I've been saved through faith. It's not my own doing. There's nothing that I can do that can ever be good enough before a God who is perfect. But God. But God. And I wonder when the last time We thought of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in our lives. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. I've never met someone who has a birthday party, and before they hand out the gifts, the parents say, I need you to go do your chores in order to earn your gifts. Why? Because it's no longer a gift. It's not our own own doing. There's nothing that would warrant me to be ever able to be worth the love of God. Why? Because I'm spiritually dead. And the significance of this for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, if that's you, is in those times, in those game changer moments, when you are tempted and you want to believe that God is not good, And you want to believe that this circumstance or that circumstance or a way I was let down in my mind in this situation or that situation. See, I told you God is not good. Or to believe that God, I see, I I knew that you weren't trustworthy. The significance of this promise of salvation to you as a follower of Jesus Christ is because there is no greater reason to to believe that God is good. There is no greater evidence to believe that God is good. There is no greater evidence to believe that God is trustworthy then, this passage right here the cross and the empty tomb are the greatest reasons why we can believe and celebrate and praise that God is good and he is trustworthy and he is worthy to be our hero, is because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And here's the last thing it's found in verse 10. See, the promise of salvation changes my life when I believe, thirdly, what I have been created for because of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've heard me say this over and over again. I've had people say, do you say the same thing every week? Yeah, just in different ways. Because that's the whole narrative of the Bible, right? Is how God is what? Reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. So if there's ever a day where you're not hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ in some shape or form as a thread through the message, that's the day that you need to call me to resign. And I've said this before, that God just in his grace and mercy did not save us from our sin. As amazing as that is, as awesome as that is, as an illustration of God's love. But he just didn't save us from our sin, but he also saved us for something. And that's why I said these 10 verses are such a great passage to really frame the narrative of your story, who I am before Christ, who I am because of Christ, and what God has given me to do through, because of Jesus Christ. I am his workmanship, that workmanship word workmanship is where we get the English word for poem. Or if you're really artsy, poem. And what I think is significant about that, whether or not you're a poet or not, is it reminds me that God has written a story for every follower of Jesus Christ. And he is unfolding that story as we walk and grow in him. And he is molding us, and he is refining us, and he's shaping off the sharp edges of my life. Why? So that I can live into the story which he created beforehand that Johnny should walk in that. And he's done that for every one of us. And when I truly understand that God saved me, I have this promise of salvation and, it, and the significance of that is when I surrender to the reality of what I have been created for, then when I experience a tragedy as difficult as it is and when I experience a consequence of the fall of sin in my life, it doesn't wreck me as painful as it is, but I understand, wait a minute, God, you are the author of my story. You don't write my story with an eraser. And so God, you can use everything in my life to accomplish your purpose that you have prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Do you see the significance of this promise of salvation? Philippians 1.6 says this, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a promise. I am his workmanship. See, there's three types of people in this room this morning. There's a person in this room that has never heard the promise of salvation. If that's you, I'm so thankful for that. Because for the first time, you've realized the sad part of the story of who you are without Christ the amazing part of the story of who you are with Christ. And if that's you today, the way that you can receive this salvation in Romans 10 says, if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. You can call out to God right now in the quietness of your mind and say, God, I am not trusting in the good that I hope I can do, but I'm trusting in your perfect sacrifice for my sin through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, I believe that you are my Savior. I receive that promise of salvation. I surrender to it. That may be true of you, and you've heard this a million times. You've known about it, but you've never surrendered to it. And you know, as You walked in this morning, you got one of those cards, and at the bottom of the card, there actually is a blank on this card that says, today I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, or I have questions about it. I encourage you, if that's you today, that you check that card. Listen to me. There is no greater thing that gets me up in the morning than talking with someone who has come to the realization of how much God loves them and their need for Him. But for the rest of us in the room... It may be that we need to bring ourselves back and say, God, I've heard this so many times. I believe in it. I've surrendered to it for my eternal destiny. But I have failed to see the significance of how it speaks to my life every day, how it shapes how I see God, how it shapes how I see my circumstances. And today, you just need to take a moment and to call out to God and say, God, forgive me. For this amazing promise, the greatest promise that could ever be given to to grow stale in my life. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. And we're going to sing a song this morning. That if you call this place your home, you've heard of, you sang it many times. But it's a song that I believe has words that communicate Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 through music. Like really, no no other song. And I want to read to you the first two verses of this song, just as you do business with God, and then we're going to sing it. It starts off this way. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, for by grace, we've been saved through faith. And I don't deserve it. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. When I was your foe, still you fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You've been so, so kind to me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. And there is no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God.